0: It's time for the 7th Avenue Project on the web at 7thavenueproject.com. Hello and welcome to the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. I'm Robert Polly. Today on the show...
1: It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! It's alive!
0: Yeah, well, a lot of us get excited at the idea of cold, dead matter stirring into life, including my guest Dave Deemer. He's a biochemist and prominent researcher into the origins of life, and in the next hour he's going to explain how the very first life may have sprung up on the early Earth with some uh, possible help from extraterrestrial care packages, and he'll describe present day attempts to recreate life anew in the lab or should i say laboratory. Dave Deemer is currently research professor in the department of biomolecular engineering at UC Santa Cruz. He's also been affiliated over the years with the NASA Ames Research Center where he gets to wear the cool sounding title of astrobiologist. We'll find out what that means and a lot more on this edition of the 7th Avenue Project. Dave, thanks for uh, joining me today. Happy to be here. What is the earliest evidence uh, of life on Earth?
1: As soon as you get into trying to answer that question, it gets controversial. And uh, we thought until a few years ago that we were quite certain that life began maybe three and a half billion years ago. And the reason for that is we saw what looked like microscopic fossils in geological formations in Australia that we know are that age, about three and a half billion years of age. And these fossils are little round things. They're very rare. They uh, were presumably, if you believe the story, put down by a mineralization around living bacteria that then left a, a trace Uh, that we call a microfossil.
0: Fossils of really primitive bacteria, but there's little round things, could be little bubbles of some
1: kind. Well, that's the controversy. Uh, The fossil idea was put forward by Bill Schaaf and Stanley Aramick. These are colleagues of mine here in the University of California, Uh, one in Santa Barbara, one down at UCLA. Uh, But that's been challenged recently by uh, Brazier and his group at Oxford University. And he says, no, these aren't fossils. Uh, The Simpler thing to believe is that these are organic compounds that just happen to round up into little structures that can be mistaken for fossils. Mm.
0: How far forward in the fossil record do we have to go to find something that is really um, unarguably life?
1: If you give me another billion years. Oh, sure. Take it. Okay. 2.8 billion years in that range. Then we have things that are really unmistakably fossilized bacteria.
0: Okay, so setting aside the controversy over the exact date of the earliest fossilized life forms, we still believe that those earliest life forms were like bacteria, yeah?
1: Yes, they certainly were bacteria. Uh, larger organisms the, that we call eukaryotes are surprisingly old now. They, we see fossil evidence for these and other kinds of evidence uh, uh, genetic evidence, basically, that puts them back one and a half billion to two billion years ago. Okay. And eukaryotes, that's what you and I are. Mm-hmm. Our cells have nuclei. Mm-hmm. Prokaryotes are bacteria, their cells don't have nuclei. The the genes are just sort of scattered in a little, uh, little clump within the cell. Mm-hmm. By the way, we don't know exactly how the nucleus came to be.
0: Mm-hmm. But uh, that's a story for another day. Let's talk about your particular bailiwick, which is the origin of life, how we get to those primitive bacteria, right? Yeah. That's your problem.
1: That's a problem, life. Right. <laughs> and uh, there's uh, two ways to get at this. One is what we call the top-down approach, where you take apart life as we know it today, see how the pieces work, try to imagine simpler pieces of it and work our way back in time by starting with living organisms and sort of arguing back in time. The other is what I call bottom-up, and that's sort of what I do in the lab. And that is you start with uh, non-living molecules, uh, amino acids, uh, nucleotides, nucleobases, phosphate, sugars, and you try to see how they could have come together on the early earth to make a simple organism of some sort. So that's a, those are the two approaches. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, let's go bottom up, okay? So let's start at the very bottom. What do you need as basic ingredients to even get the molecules that you just named? I mean, some of those molecules are themselves made of atoms and other molecules, yeah? That's right. Amino acids are kind of complicated. So how do yeah. you get to those in the first place?
1: Uh, I like to keep uh, four and four in mind, the number four. There's four elements that are primary to all the molecules of life. It's carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen. And uh, those, by the way, of course, are part of the Earth, and uh, we imagine those came together to form molecules on the early Earth. The molecules of life, there's four of those, amino acids, nucleotides, which are the sort of unit of n- nucleic acids like DNA and RNA, sugars, simple sugars that are also part of uh, RNA and DNA, but... In fact, are part of cellulose and starch. That's really carbohydrates. All part of it. Carbohydrates in general. Yeah. Then the last one is uh, my particular favorite is lipids, and these are sort of greasy molecules of life that make the membranes. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to figure out how to make those fall together without any help. We call this a spontaneous self assembly, and some of those molecules will in fact undergo this kind of self assembly process.
0: A little basic uh, biochemistry here. I hope our listeners can bear with us. All of the, the big molecules that we're trying to build are chains of smaller molecules, yeah? That's right. So proteins are chains of amino acids. Those are the building blocks. Nucleic acids, DNA and RNA, are chains of these nucleotides.
1: Nucleotides.
0: The Fats are chains of fatty acids.
1: Well, uh, that's where you get a little bit <laughs> astray because those aren't true polymers. Everything that you said so far is a polymer. It's sort of a long string of molecules. But fatty acids and lipids are, in fact, just like a soap bubble, they are held together ah. without actually being chemically linked together. Ah, uh,
0: Yes, and bubbles are going to play a big part of this story. And finally, carbohydrates, which are strings of sugars. That's right. Yeah, so by and large, we have to get to those building blocks, and then we have to see how they could assemble into these long chains. That's right. So the building blocks, were they just sitting around on Earth waiting to be uh, strung together like beads? Um,
1: Well, there's a wonderful answer to that. I'm (laughs) on uh, solid ground here because we study meteorites. They're called carbonaceous chondrites, and uh, these have never seen anything alive. And yet when we break them open and analyze what's in them, lo and behold, amino acids, nucleobases, phosphate, even a little bit of sugar— So the components of life are somehow part of the solar system from which these meteorites were derived. And by the way, they're from asteroids. So very early in solar system history, four and a half billion years ago, uh, there were asteroid-sized objects called planetesimals coming together from sort of the dust that was part of the what we call the solar nebula around the uh, protostar we call our sun now. So these, in fact, have a way of being synthesized by non-biological processes. So everything that you mentioned uh, as part of the polymers of life, the proteins and nucleic acids, we see simple units of those. The amino acids, the nucleobases, which is the adenine, guanine, cytosine, thymine, and uracil. These are the five bases that are in DNA and RNA. And, of course, phosphate, is that's everywhere. Sugars, there's a little bit of sugar there. We So the, the point being that uh, there must be a way for these to have been synthesized in the early solar system. And therefore, we feel pretty confident in saying that they were available on the early Earth before life began in a very dilute solution in the early ocean at that time. And we're talking about 4 billion years ago.
0: Now, it used to be thought, that these things could have formed spontaneously on Earth. Uh, why did we have to go to outer space to to get these basic ingredients?
1: Yes, uh, you're referring to, uh, you know, my friend and colleague, Stanley Miller, who uh, died just a few years ago. He did a um, epic experiment, uh, published in 1953, showing that amino acids can just fall out of a what he thought was a prebiotic atmosphere containing four gases, water, vapor... Uh, ammonia, methane, and hydrogen. So when he sparked that, and this is really high school chemistry stuff mm-hmm. has been done in science sphere projects, mm-hmm. in fact, out comes amino acids. And that was a real breakthrough because suddenly we realized that the subunits of life, amino acids, subunits of proteins, could be made very simply by a chemical self-assembly process from even simpler compounds. And I
0: I should jump in and say this is an experiment, the the Miller-Urey experiment back in 1953, you say, Mm that um, was in all the biology textbooks. And it was presented for a long time as though they'd they'd really broken through, figured out how the early components of life sprung up. They created a little artificial primitive earth with a little water and atmosphere and sparks that might have come from, say, lightning. And they created. They found, lo and behold, in the sealed glass environment, that amino acids appeared.
1: Lots of other stuff comes yeah. along too. It's not mm-hmm. just amino acids. Mm-hmm. It turns brownish orange color the flask as this stuff accumulates. The
0: primordial soup. Yeah, that
1: would be the primordial soup. Well, what happened? <laughs> what happened is that we began to realize that the Earth's early atmosphere at the time of life's beginning was much more likely to have been what we call a volcanic atmosphere, carbon dioxide and water vapor being emitted from the hot interior of the Earth, and even coming to the Earth, by the way, in the form of comets. And if you look out at the ocean, our best guess now is the ocean is 10% comet water. But that's another story. So it's really – but the point being that uh, how can you get Miller-Urey reactions to work in a carbon dioxide atmosphere? And the fact is it doesn't work very well. The yields are much, much reduced. So we began to think maybe a lot of this organic stuff was brought to the Earth by what we call extraterrestrial infall. Comets, meteoritic dust, even meteorites. And the fact is we see these molecules in meteorites when we analyze it. So that's a good second alternative idea about where those organic compounds came from.
0: Special delivery from outer space. (laughs) You betcha. And you've had your hands on some of these meteorites. Yeah, Yeah, I've
1: got uh, maybe a dozen in the lab. The lab... uh... Here just right Santa up Cruz. here on campus, yeah. And uh, these uh, range all the way from the Orgue, which fell in France and uh, was the first uh, meteorite to be recognized having organic compounds in it. The most famous was the Murchison meteorite, and that has been studied all over the world. Uh, about, what, 1969, 40 years ago now. Uh, just about this time of year, September, there's a flash of light in the sky and a thunderous explosion overhead, and then a few minutes later, stones fell down all over the little town of Murchison, Australia, and they collected about uh, 200 pounds of meteoritic stones, some of them still warm. They had a strange aroma kind of baking out the organic material, and they were quickly collected and distributed all over the world to scientists like myself, and they have really been part of our analyses ever since.
0: So these might have provided sort of a toolkit for building life. That's right. Has anyone uh, coined the term Frankenstone yet?
1: Uh, No, I like that. (laughs) How can I use that one? (laughs) Frankenstone, okay. Uh,
0: So um, before we move on to uh, how things proceeded on Earth, I just want to say, are you guys positing something mysterious and hand-wavy out there in space creating these these molecules, or do you have an idea of how how it might have happened?
1: No, we've uh, got – (laughs) <laughs> pretty good idea about how this stuff came to be and this is all quite recent by the way so I'm not sure that a lot of it has become common knowledge yet but over at NASA Ames there's a buddy of mine named Lou Alamondola and he set up a lab to recreate the conditions in the solar nebula this dust cloud that gives rise to solar systems new stars and planets And what he discovered is that if you have ultraviolet light impinging on an atmosphere, which we think is the kind of gases that we know are in these solar nebula, that organic compounds are synthesized by a photochemical process, including glycine, one of the amino acids, bunches of other organic compounds. So we think what happens is that in the early solar system, even before planets form, there was, it was being cooked by UV light, that the, these uh, organic compounds settle down on dust particles. The dust particles accrete to form uh, asteroid-sized objects we call Mm. planetesimals. Mm. Those then crash together to produce planets. Mm. And along with it all comes this organic material.
0: Okay, so thanks to these meteorites hitting the Earth, the the pantry is stocked, and uh, it's a question of what happened in the kitchen.
1: Oh, that's right. That's the next part of this story.
0: (laughs) So um, I guess the the next big problem is, um, how do you assemble all of these little building blocks some of which at least seem to have come from outer space into these more complicated molecules and then how do those molecules start to group themselves together into what might be primitive cells and start to work so take us to the next step and this is all hypothetical i know but uh, yeah,
1: it is hypothetical and it's my hypothesis by the way uh, somewhat controversial <laughs> Not everybody will agree with the, that what I'm going to tell you now is the most plausible scenario. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, nobody knows with, with certainty. So I'm just following my own scenario.
0: Well, I'm going to dance with the one who I brung. So okay, give me good, your good. hypothesis.
1: Here, here's, here's how it goes. We know the early Earth was hot at the time that life began. Uh, there are th- signatures in the rocks from that era that tell us that it was probably around 70 to 80 degrees Celsius, so near the boiling point of water.
0: Mm-hmm. Near 212 degrees Fahrenheit. That's right. Yeah.
1: So we also know that there were oceans. Uh, a colleague of mine, uh, John Valley, back at the uh, University of Wisconsin, has studied zircons that are very old. And the zircons give clear evidence that water was around on the earth well before the time that we think life began. So we're now convinced there's oceans, there's water, there's probably volcanic land masses, and it was hot. There was also a distillation process because, just as today, uh, it rains in Hawaii, it snows in Iceland. There's a precipitation uh, where you distill water out of the ocean, and now suddenly it's no longer salt water, it's fresh water. Mm-hmm. Raining on these volcanic islands, uh, aggregating, accumulating in pools, and that is why I go to study volcanoes in Kamchatka, up in Mount Lassen, in Hawaii, and Iceland, because I think that the shake-and-bake idea, which is what my colleagues refer to this idea, <laughs> where you shake this stuff up, you bake it, that that is a way to get life started, or at least get the polymers of life produced. Now, this idea goes back quite a ways, uh, 50 years at least. A friend of mine who's now uh, passed away is uh, named Sid Fox. And Sidney Fox showed that if you baked amino acids, that they polymerized. Everybody agrees this happens. They form chains. They form chains. The trouble is, the reason people kind of got away from that as a primary way to make the polymers of life, to start up the polymeric material, is that... um, all kinds of bonds are formed besides the linking bonds of biological protein so what he was producing is kind of a cross cross-linked material that some people refer to as tar it's kind of a brownish structure but it gets round he he loved the idea that these are microspheres and so he really took went to town on this and most people agree and i agree that he went too far in his uh, his speculation about this because he really thought he was on the right track. Well, people kind of gave up on that idea because we had RNA and ribozymes come along. Now, uh, RNA is part of life. It's this a sort of messenger between the gene and the ribosomes that make proteins.
0: Very similar to DNA.
1: Similar to DNA. It's got just one little chemical difference in the sugar group. But uh, the neat thing about RNA is it can be catalytic. And this was discovered in 1983 by Tom Cech and Sidney Altman. They got Nobel Prizes for this discovery. And they found that RNA could be a catalyst, and now it's called ribozyme. You know, enzyme, ribozyme. So that's how that name came to
0: be. So again, just to explain a little further here, RNA, like DNA, we know can encode information. But what wasn't known until this discovery you're talking about is that it can also promote chemical reactions. Right. You know, it can actually stir the drink, so Mm -hmm. to speak, and make things happen. So it can be both the recipe and the cook. Yep. So what's the importance of that discovery?
1: Very important because we have this chicken and egg deal. Which came first, the nucleic acid or the protein? And we just didn't know. But what if you can have the chicken and the egg all together? You mm-hmm. know, they they come together—the catalytic function and the genetic function. Right. And Pro-
0: what, protein was thought to do all the, the catalytic work. That's right. Which it normally does. But if RNA can do it itself, all you need is RNA, right? To that's begin with. What
1: Walter Gilbert said in 1986, and he said there must have been an RNA world that preceded our present world of you know biological world of uh, DNA and protein. Mm-hmm. And uh, the RNA world then depended on ribozymes both to carry the gene and to catalyze their own replication. Mm -hmm. And that sort of brings us up to where we are right now. That was as big a breakthrough as Stanley Miller's in in the conceptual uh, framework of the origin of life, is that ribozymes could have served both as gene and as catalyst. So that's where we are now, and we're trying to find a way to get rna to replicate itself. People have come close. Uh, David Bartel, working with Jack Sjostak back at uh, Harvard, uh, showed that uh, you you can get a ribozyme, you can evolve a ribozyme in fact, that can copy about 14 of its um, nucleotides and sort of reproduce part of it. Be like you and me reproducing our thumb or something like that, if we could make that much of ourselves. Then we have uh, Peter Unrau, who's up at um, uh, British Columbia, and he has shown that, in fact, uh, you can get it up to about 20 now. Mm -hmm. Now, what, what we're doing is a little bit different in my lab, and that is we're saying, how did the RNA get there in the first place? Question. And this is, this is a question nobody knows for sure. There's been a sort of prevailing idea that minerals, and particularly clay, has something to do with it. And Jim Ferris uh, at Rensselaer Polytechnic has shown that, in fact, clay can organize the pieces of RNA in such a way that they will zip up. Clay is
0: a nice surface on which these things can sort of settle and start to line up in the proper way. Is that right? right. Yeah. That's
1: right. It's an organizing surface. Mm-hmm. Now, what we're doing is taking off on that idea and saying, getting back to my greasy stuff, lipids, that lipids, like clay, can also organize the monomers of RNA in such a way as to promote their, uh, their linking up. Furthermore, we can do this by simple heating not to volcanic temperatures, just to, uh, what, anywhere from 70, 80 degrees C Celsius, you know, up toward boiling point of water. And that's enough to put the energy in to cause this linkage to occur. But only because we have organized the monomers within what we call a lamellar, a layered matrix of these lipids that promotes the reaction. And we published that just last year, and we're now waiting to see if other people can repeat Mm -hmm.
0: it. Now... um Let's put together that, uh, that bit of information with the fact that you often traips off to volcanic areas like Kamchatka in uh, Russia to uh, Iceland most recently. You just got back from Iceland. That's right. Yeah? yeah. And uh, Hawaii. Is that just a scam you're pulling to go on great <laughs> vacations? Why do you have to go out there?
1: What I would like to do <laughs> is to step out of the laboratory and convince myself of what we can make happen in the lab could also happen in a natural environment, what we call an early Earth analog Mm -hmm. environment. It's like the early Earth. It's as close as we can get. And as soon as you try to do that, you can't help but learn things. And one of the things I learned, for example, is that uh, these can be very acidic environments. I was working up at uh, Mount Lassen in a place called Bumpus Hell last summer, and I knelt down to uh, get a sample from uh, this uh, this volcanic area. And on the way home, the knees fell out of my jeans oh. because of the sulfuric acid that accumulated.
0: And the skin on your knees didn't go with it? Well,
1: it was not that <laughs> strong a s sulfuric acid. But it was really uh, interesting to wow. realize for the first time that uh, these are very acidic environments. And so life, the first life, might not have been thermophilic, loving high heat, it might have been acidophilic, liking an acidic environment. Hmm. So in the laboratory, when we try to do that and spurred on by this uh, observation, we make sure that it is an acidic environment. And that does help the reaction along. It makes it more likely that this RNA will be synthesized in these lipid environments. What we end up with, by the way, is RNA in membranes. So that we call a protocell We think that's a step toward the origin of life.
0: So let's, uh, again, I'm going to try to um, dissect this a little bit and make sure that every step of the way we go is is really clear. Um, We know that somehow life sprang from these building blocks that then somehow assembled into chains like RNA from these little building blocks called nucleotides, like proteins from amino acids. You're saying that if we had RNA, we then have a model of how we could encode sort of information and reproduce it. RNA can copy itself. If we had these membranes of fatty acids, these little bubbles, then we'd have a way of enclosing this, and that's really important to life too. You've uh, done a lot of work on how these bubbles could form by themselves.
1: Yeah, that's what we call a self-assembly process. Mm -hmm. And the the, uh, little bubbles we call vesicles or lipid vesicles, sometimes liposomes, Mm -hmm. And uh, these just uh, self-assemble all by themselves. And it's a beautiful thing to watch under the microscope, by the way. You've got this little dried mass of lipid. As soon as you add water, these uh, sort of long worm-like chains come out, and those then break down into these bubble-like structures. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and, and so you get bubbles. You maybe get some RNA in there and hopefully some other stuff, and eventually you get things working together like a little machine or factory, and it's, mm-hmm. it's life.
1: Well, they have yeah. got to remember, each <laughs> bubble... And each content of each bubble is different from Mm -hmm. all the others. Mm -hmm. So each bubble is an experiment, a a natural experiment. And uh, only a very rare few of these out of probably trillions happen to have the specific mix of material that would let it take the next step. And that is toward a self-replicating system.
0: And before we go on to that next step and talk about it, you think the ideal environment for this might have resembled some... Present-day volcanic environments. Yes. So you go and study these little pools of hot, fresh water. Is that right? That's right. See what's happening in them. Mm-hmm. So, And you have witnessed things like this happening in them, well, bubbles
1: forming and so on? That's where you learn things. So yeah. uh, in one of our trips to Kamchatka, we found a beautiful little puddle. Uh, we call it Darwin's Hot Little Puddle because he talked about a warm little pond. So this is a hot little puddle. And I actually put in a mixture of amino acids, nucleobases, phosphate, glycerol, fatty acids, the stuff that I would have guessed would be in the primordial soup. And what happened? It all stuck to the clay. Nothing happened. It just was sucked (laughs) out of solution and bound to the clay. (laughs) Well, if you're a clay guy, you think, well, that's great. Something's got to happen on the clay. But if you're me, I say wait a minute, you know, I can't get this to react because it's all been taken out of solution and bound to the clay surface. So that's one of the lessons that I learned by going off to the volcanic area and just trying this out. So now what we do is we adjust. And I don't dump things into the pool anymore, but I put them on the edge of the pool so that I can retrieve a little porous bit of lava, for example, after it's gone through a wet-dry cycle. And we just did that in Hawaii, by the way, a few months ago. And if you watch the National Geographic channel, it's coming up in the next few months. They'll have a, a nice segment on the origin of life.
0: Oh, great. Okay, so now we've got a model, Dave Diemer's hypothesis at least, and uh, we don't have time to go off and talk about everybody else's, but there are many others battling it out, right? Mm-hmm. For getting to something you call proto-life, you know, little bubbles with some of the in- kinds of molecules we need in living things. Now, is it? A gigantic leap there, though, to the next stage or to the, the stage that we finally see in fossils, which is bacteria, who, you know, they're not just bubbles with l- a little RNA in them. They are full-fledged, complicated machines with a great deal of coordination, great deal of activity, reproducing themselves, metabolizing, infecting other things. I mean, they're, they're just amazing, you know, in terms of their complexity. How do we get to there?
1: Well— Of course, this is uh, the next century of research, probably. Keep in mind that those bacteria have been evolving from the simplest form of life for at least three billion years. Mm -hmm. Okay. So they've had a lot of time to perfect their act. Yeah. Uh, We're trying to get a logical sequence from inorganic matter, carbonaceous organic matter, right on to the simplest replicating system we can imagine. And uh, even that is a big leap. You know, we haven't solved that at all yet. We can make things replicate by using enzymes. So there's no problem there. We can make DNA make more of itself, but it needs an enzyme to help it along. Mm -hmm. So what we're really looking for is a way to get find some molecule that can make more of itself, copy a sequence of uh, subunits uh, without using what we would call an enzyme. Mm -hmm. The other way to get at this question, though, is this top-down approach. And this is where Craig Venter and Hamilton Smith are coming in. They're taking apart a bacterial cell, synthesizing its DNA, sort of copying the DNA all by just laboratory synthesis without using uh, what we would call a, uh, a uh, enzymatic synthesis. And then they're, they want to put that synthetic DNA back into a bacteria that's been emptied of its genome. Mm-hmm. And they want to literally sort of do the Frankenstein act, mm-hmm. the microscopic Frankenstein. Creating life. Putting um, it back together again.
0: The, Craig Venter uh, was uh, formerly with Celera Genomics. He was one of the, the people who helped initially sequence the human genome, along with people who are your colleagues at UCSC and many others, uh, and now is with the, the Craig Venter Institute, I guess. And he's doing this kind of synthetic life where he reverse engineers, right? That's right. Now, that, of course, I mean I – mean, I don't want to downplay it, but that sounds easier to me to take a bacterium and say, okay, I can – maybe I can duplicate something like this than it is to come up with a way in which that could have formed in the beginning Oh yeah, from, from scratch. Without yeah.
1: doubt. But uh, as you take things apart and try to put them back together, you can't help but learn lessons. Mm. And the mm. lesson that you can learn from trying to do what Craig is doing is uh, how do you insert this genome that you synthesized into a system, an integrated system, mm. where there are controls, you know, break this, uh, turn that, you know, accelerate that, uh, inhibit that. Because a whole set of controls in any living cell that you also have to be able to turn on and off. Okay. So the first life must have had a set of controls as well. you You can't have something just kind of grow forever because... You know, it, it outgrows its container, for example. Mm-hmm. So that's really uh, one of the deeper questions we're facing is how to get the system established in the first form of life. You've
0: contemplated this a very long time. And I wonder, um, from your vantage point, first of all, what is life? Is there, is there a, a clear distinction between molecules bumping around and occasionally organizing themselves, as you've seen them do, right? And um, something that we would call a living creature,
1: Yeah, there's uh, a big gray area, and that's why it's very hard to answer that question. Uh, There is no sort of one-sentence definition of life that everybody can agree upon. What I do when I talk to people about this is say, uh, I don't want to try to define life, because trying to define life is trying to define an automobile. You know, uh, I can make a one-sentence description of an automobile. But as soon as I do that, you can say, well, that's also a pony cart, you know, four wheels and a mode of transportation. So look at how tough it'd be for me to do something as like an automobile, to define it in one sentence. So I think the way to to define life uh, in a very general sense is to list a set of properties that are not shared by anything else that we know when you put all those properties together. That's really what I'm asking. And if you pull out one of those properties, suddenly it's not alive.
0: It's dead. Yeah. Okay, so what are those properties?
1: Well, there's eight or ten of them. Oh, there's that many? Yes. So reproduction for sure. It's got to completely reproduce all of the molecules. In order to do that, it has to take nutrients in from the environment, and it has to metabolize those in such a way that the nutrients can be part of the uh, growth process. Mm -hmm. It's got to have a way to capture energy. So the energy comes from outside. It's got to transduce the energy into a kind of energy that can be used to drive the growth process. It's got to be catalyzed. There has to be a catalysis of this, and the catalytic processes have to be regulated. So there's just six right off the top of my Mm -hmm. head, and I could keep going. Mm -hmm. Now,
0: if we look at um, inanimate things— is there anything that comes close to that in the inanimate world? Um, crystals are organized, mm-hmm. right? They can yeah. actually perpetuate themselves. I mean, they can create new crystals. Yeah. yeah? Why aren't they alive?
1: They uh, don't take energy from outside to drive uh, this growth uh, process. Uh-huh. That would be just one exception to the rule.
0: What about another, this is going to sound like a very weird example, but a star. It has a birth. It has a death. It uses energy. As it uses that energy up, it eventually mm-hmm. dies, gives rise to dust that forms another star. I don't know if that's reproduction, but yeah. uh, why well, isn't that a living thing?
1: We certainly talk about stellar evolution. And yeah. by the way, that's the uh, the seventh. Uh, life evolves. It changes mm. over time. It can mm. adapt to its environment. So, uh, in fact, that's what stars cannot do. Mm. They don't evolve in the sense that life does, because a star doesn't adapt to its environment. It just sort of goes through a nuclear reaction, which uh, then uh, runs through from start to finish, and then it explodes and uh, releases all of that stuff back into space.
0: Which becomes another star sooner yes, or later. Yes, that's yeah. right. It
1: does give rise to another star. Mm. When you
0: watch molecules, the complicated molecules, do their thing in this pre-life state, organize, maybe start to have a few reactions. Do you get a little tingle watching these things happen? Like, is this sort of like watching this miracle of life begin?
1: Well, a little while ago I used the word beautiful. Yeah. And uh, what I see under the microscope is truly beautiful. I think people share the intrinsic beauty of what I'm seeing as these self-assembled molecules go through this physical process of producing order out of disorder. And by the way, there's number eight, Uh, life produces order from disorder. It's a big general kind of a property of life.
0: In general, the universe tends toward disorder, that is entropy, and life reverses that process. Yes, it does. At the expense of energy.
1: That's right. It's an open system, takes energy in in order to sort of run against the second law of thermodynamics. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of beauty. Um, That's what I see under the microscope. But if I could show you some of the actual molecules of life, those have their own beauty because we now see these, in a sense, by X-ray diffraction crystallography. And we now can see where individual atoms are organized within a protein. And these are truly beautiful structures when you see them. Mm.
0: And if we were able to shrink ourselves down and walk into a cell, bacterium or any other kind of cell, get down at the molecular level... I mean what we'd see is molecules going about their business in very complicated ways. Proteins and DNA are amazing in the things that they can do mm-hmm. on their own. So if you were to if you were to see that would you say in a sense the molecules are really getting close by themselves to something like life?
1: Yeah, but the uh, molecule a protein for example is by itself is not part of a system Mm -hmm. of molecules. Mm -hmm. And life is a system Mm -hmm. of molecules. As soon as you pull that out, nothing more happens. That molecule might have a catalytic function, but that's all it can do. It's not regulated. All it can do is to turn over some substrate, for example. You plug it back in, and again, it becomes part of the system of molecules that we call life.
0: Right. So you would not argue that there's any mysterious essence that enters the picture, and voila, the breath of life is imparted on something, right? It's just a stage in the interactions of these complicated molecules that, at some point, fits our definition or our criteria for life.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair enough. Um, so you, you're talking about some essence. Well, and-
0: I, I realize that I'm talking using language that a scientist would almost certainly reject. But obviously, this is an old philosophical problem for people. You know, at one point, you have inanimate stuff. Even when you put molecules together, they're still inanimate. Even if they're having reactions like the ones you've described, they're still inanimate. Hmm. And at some point, a threshold is crossed and the system starts running on its own, Mm -hmm, on its own mm -hmm. steam. Mm -hmm. And you can walk away and it will reproduce itself and it will acquire energy and do all these things that seem as though they're self-directed.
1: I suppose, again, getting back to my car, my automobile analogy, (laughs) all i got to (laughs) do is remove six spark plugs from my my car um, it's it's not alive it's dead it just sits there nothing happens right but as soon as i put those back in something magical happens well Mm. not exactly we understand what happens and then the car comes alive and it can go so similarly i think uh, i like to think about life in that way that uh, there are pieces that work together if i take one out it doesn't work
0: um You probably uh, do run into people, though, who would like to believe or do believe that there is something more going on there, Mm -hmm. something more mysterious. Yeah. You've debated creationists. Yes. Yeah? Tell me about your interactions with people who don't like this mechanistic model of life, who who believe there has to be something divine or otherwise mysterious that comes into the picture.
1: Yeah, without getting to a creationist just right off the okay. start. Let me say that I've had interesting conversation with poets. Ah. And a poet says... You're ruining my trees by explaining them the way you do. You make them in these cold structures, you know. And I don't want trees to be like that. I want trees to be trees that I can use in poems. So, you know, I thought I was very much struck by that, that uh, they felt that I was somehow destroying their concept of trees, their poetic concept, by allowing them to understand it if they wish to, you see. Uh, And yet... In my head, as a uh, as a biochemist, I've got some beautiful trees that have nothing to do with the tree that the poet sees. I've got my own tree of life, and I see beauty in that tree, which is an evolutionary tree, a phylogenetic tree. And I can I can at every stage of this tree, I see uh, beautiful things emerging. I think uh, Darwin had that same sense. I think most people who go into science really have some sense of the intrinsic beauty of what they are developing in their these images of um, knowledge that they bring about.
0: Well, Darwin was definitely aesthetic. I mean, his writing was very aesthetic. Mm-hmm. It was beautiful. He came up with wonderful, um, memorable phrases like, endless forms most beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yes. So beauty is definitely a part of his experience of biology. Um,
1: I wouldn't mind, by the way, touching on on the religious people I'd run up against. Oh, yeah, let's do that. Uh, the, the creationists are sort of set apart. I did uh, debate um, the uh, people from the Discovery Institute up in mm. Seattle that came down here specifically to debate a, a scientist in a public forum, and I brought uh, Daryl Darling in on my side of the debate, Reverend Daryl Darling, who's my former neighbor in uh, Davis when we were both lived there and we both happened to move to Santa Cruz and maintained our friendship. And uh, Daryl just uh, could, uh, as a religious person, a deeply religious person, see that what the creations were doing was very much apart from. It traditional religious beliefs. They, they've they got another ax to grind. So I'm going to leave the creationists out, and we're going to go on to really deeply religious people, like Daryl, for example. Mm-hmm. And my religious colleagues, and Francis Collins is one of these, the new director of NIH. He was the director of the Cancer Institute, written books on his uh, Christian uh, uh, belief and how this interacts with the science. They just say, uh, this is the way God made uh, the universe, and we're simply discovering rules of physics and chemistry that were put in place by the supreme intelligence who we really can't understand. Mm. And that's fair enough. You know, this is, it could be, uh, Dawkins would say, well, that's just another hypothesis. But in fact, it's, it's more than that. It fits a personal need in people who have this need for religious belief. And, um, I'm delighted that they, they can have that feeling.
0: Well, where I do see common ground, though, is um, in that view, which is a a more modern version of religion, um, some I think might have called deism at some point. The divine created the physical laws of the universe and let it go, (laughs) right? And and that's what we see. But I'm wondering, also, there might be common ground in the sort of um, reverence or um, awe that you feel uh, when you contemplate these things.
1: Yes, I think... uh... You you really could go a long way if you wanted to set up a, bring together a group of people that share this sense of beauty in the universe, because uh, there's a whole bunch of scientists who just have that deep sense that the universe is a beautiful, elegant place. We're discovering wonderful laws that were somehow put in place. And uh, let's get together and enjoy this uh, sense of beauty together.
0: Mm. What's your favorite molecule?
1: Uh, My favorite molecule is probably a phospholipid along with DNA, and uh, it goes way back, by the way. My dad and I had the first commercial DNA molecule in the market, and way back in 1962, I think, we were actually selling beautiful little extruded molecules of of DNA. Your father and you? Yeah, he was a uh, hydraulic engineer, and uh, I did the science, and he did the sort of modeling of this, and we used polyurethane foam to make these models, and uh, then, of course, I've done DNA music, so it's always been part of my life as a way to uh, enjoy this the beauty of this particular molecule.
0: Well, well, DNA has plenty of admirers. Um, I'd like to talk about your favorite phospholipid, but um, you, uh, you mentioned music, and it might be a nice time for a musical interlude. We're going to play a piece that you actually, I want to say composed, but I'm going to say transcribed.
1: Transcribed is correct.
0: Yeah. So tell us how this came about.
1: Uh, in the 1980s, the first sequences of DNA were being published. There were bacterial sequences, and uh, finally somebody got around to doing insulin. So that was published, as I say, in the early 1980s. And I was teaching classes at the University of California Davis campus at the time, teaching, of course, cell biology, biochemistry. And it's really hard for people to understand that information can be embedded in sequences of nucleotides, you know, these four big notes of DNA, A, G, C, and T. And here these sequences were, and three of the bases happened to have musical notes, adenine for A, guanine for G, and cytosine for C. So I just began to play on the piano. I made thymine into the note E, and that gives me a C major 6th chord or an A minor 7th chord. I could compose within this if I felt like it. But then I realized that musical melodic sequences came out of genes if you played them just as they came through in these these, uh, early genes, for instance, of the insulin gene.
0: So take the four little building blocks that make up DNA, these four nucleotides— assign them each a note, mm-hmm. look at actual genes, a sequence of these four bases repeating and varying over long stretches, mm-hmm. and see what kind of music they produce. That's right. And, and you was, picked insulin.
1: I picked insulin because it was the very first. It's, uh, it's only about 50 uh, uh, amino acids long. And there's two parts to it, an A-chain and a B-chain. So it was right there just waiting for somebody to do that.
0: The, the insulin itself is a protein, uh, and you say it's a very short series of, it's peptide, really. Yeah,
1: yeah? it's it's not quite as long enough to be a protein, but people think of it that way.
0: Okay, but peptide may be the right term? Yeah. A string of amino acids. It's Mm. produced by the insulin gene. That's right. And that's what you interpreted musically. Exactly so. Okay. And you're going to
1: hear it, I think, you're going to play the insulin gene, is that right? Yeah. Okay, you're going to hear triplets. That's the first four uh, amino acids of insulin. And what you just heard me sort of hum, I'm probably the only person in the world that can hum the insulin gene, uh, are the triplets. Let's see, that's uh, three, um, uh, three thymines in a row. Then guanine, thymine, guanine, bum, bum, bum. Then A-A-C-C-A-A. So see, in my head, I've just got that gene because I've got the melody in my Mm -hmm. head. Mm -hmm. So you're going to hear these triplets. Underneath the triplets, my musician friend that actually did this on a synthesizer had to put in a kind of a uh, pulsating rhythm. So you hear that as well. But you're really going to hear the insulin gene as it sits in the human genome, and you're going to hear it played at the same rate as the insulin is synthesized in the islet cells of your pancreas. It's about one amino acid per second.
0: First off, I want to say that sounds great, okay? I mean, who would have thought? I might have thought it would just be a bunch of random notes that sounded horrible, but it actually sounds quite good. And you didn't manipulate it to make it sound better.
1: Only to the extent of choosing the octave for each uh, note in it. And that's the only freedom we gave to ourselves, just choice of octave. And if you go to the internet and look for DNA music, you'll see dozens of musicians all over the world. Doing some beautiful takeoffs on uh, genetic music.
0: You said uh, now DNA aside, what about this phospholipid that you said is one of your favorite molecules? Most people don't pick lipids. I mean,
1: they're fats, right? Yeah, <laughs> I know, right? A yeah, phospholipid <laughs> is so neat because it uh, it's soap-like and forms these beautiful microscopic bubbles. Nothing else does that, and without something like a phospholipid, life as we know it could not mm. exist.
0: Mm. I want to step away from the origins of life on Earth uh just a bit and talk a little bit more about um your origins and life as a scientist. Um I was reading up on you. Hmm. I saw that you won the uh Westinghouse science yeah. talent competition when you were in high school. That's right. And this is very prestigious. This is nationwide science talent search. Yep. You know, American Idol for Uh, science (laughs) teens. Uh, And you won it. Um, Had you always been a science kid? And and how did that come about? Yeah,
1: pretty much. I think uh, it's just like, the only analogy I have is like, it's like being a musician. If you're a musician, you know, very early in life that music's very important to you. And just carries you right on through a musical career. And I think with some scientists, at least, it's very similar to that. So I can remember being six years old. And I've told this story before. And uh, going outdoors in Chicago, Illinois, and the little boy next door had a chemistry kit, and he'd made some bluish concoction and was pouring it down a crack in the sidewalk. And I said, well, what are you doing? He said, I made ant poison. <laughs> and I wanted to make ant poison, too. So uh, my parents got me a chemistry set for Christmas, and I could not have been happier.
0: And uh, you continued on on that, uh, that path through high school. And what did you do to win this big prize?
1: Yeah, it was a... Um, Sort of a self-taught process in which I, uh, my dad had bought a microscope for me, you know, sort of encouraging me. And he let me use his camera, and I learned how to do microscopy of protozoa swimming in cultures. And uh, it was basically a discovery that when the culture is dense enough, the protozoa under the microscope will form beautiful little ring-like structures that then grow outward. And I was able to make up a hypothesis about why that happened test the hypothesis, and then write that up for this essay. Mm. And uh, that was, um, you know, nobody helped. It was just me enjoying the s- science of a teenage kid.
0: Was the question of the origin of life on your mind even then?
1: I remember first realizing that it was a question uh, in my first year of graduate school. And uh, John O'Rourke who's a, uh, he's passed away since, uh, I knew him, but uh, he was a uh, scientist, a Spanish scientist down in uh, Houston, Texas. And he discovered that hydrogen cyanide, of all things, forms adenine. So this is a discovery as monumental as uh, what uh, Stanley Miller had discovered, that you can get amino acids out of an ordinary uh, atmosphere just by sparking it. So, uh, Oro had discovered this process by which one of the main bases of all life, adenine, which part of DNA, part of RNA, part of ATP, the energy molecule of life, it just falls together out of five hydrogen cyanides and they polymerize into eight into adenine. So, that struck me. I hope he had
0: a good sealed chamber in which to perform this. Oh, right? yeah, you're pretty careful with cyanide
1: <laughs> when you do this uh, sort of a thing. But uh, that really stuck with me, and when I finally had a chance to uh, work about 15 years later as a now a young scientist at UC Davis, I, I carried that thought with me. This would really be interesting to get into. And what I had gotten into by that time was working with lipids, making membrane vesicles, and realizing that nobody knew where membranes came from. So that's where we got into meteorites and it just occurred to me that we should look at meteorites and see if there's anything in a meteorite that can self assemble into a membrane it turned out to be an easy experiment it happened right away at a paper in nature that uh, just basically Uh, you know, set the field in that direction, that it was possible to have a self-assembling molecule out of a completely primitive mixture that never saw anything alive, and yet it made these beautiful little lipid vesicles.
0: And when was that work published? 85, 1985. So the hard part was getting your hands on a meteorite a bit. Well, yeah, that's how
1: I met people at NASA Ames, Uh because they work with meteorites. And uh, Sherwood Chang was at Ames at the time, and he just handed me my first little chunk of the Murchison.
0: Nice, man. You better be careful with that. Oh, yeah, that's (laughs) right. And that's how you get this this interesting title to some of your work, uh, astrobiology.
1: Yeah, astrobiology grew up out of a meteorite, and it was uh, found in Antarctica, uh, I think back in the 1980s. And then it was realized in the late 1980s that this is a Martian meteorite. And this work was being done at the Johnson Space Center. And a guy there named David McKay, who's a microscopist, he said, I'm gonna look and see if there's anything that looks like it might be a fossil. Because here's this stuff from the surface of Mars blown away by a big impact millions of years ago. Knocked loose from Mars. Knocked loose, traveled to Earth, landed in Antarctica, kind of a pristine environment, nothing alive there. And so he began to look and he began to see stuff. And, uh, he and his colleagues had a very famous paper in science in 1996. And I was in Iceland at the time, by the way, and I remember trying to read this in Icelandic language. You know, what was all the fuss about? And then I realized, you know, this is very important. So, uh, Daniel Golden at, uh, who was the director at NASA said, let's make a science out of this. They made up this word, astrobiology, the link between stars and life on the Earth. And I really buy into that. I think there's a story to be told much larger than just evolution in our biosphere, which is this little thin film of life on our planet. We can say much more about life by going to the stars, going to solar systems, and learning how life came to be in the context of the rest of the universe.
0: Do you think that the hypothetical events that we talked about earlier that led to the formation of life from simple molecules creating more complicated molecules, eventually organizing themselves into self-reproducing living organisms. Do you think that's an incredibly rare event that maybe happened once in the history of Earth, or is it something that happened a lot and uh, one lucky lineage survived?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I've really pondered this question a lot, and uh, everything I've told you is that life is based on certain rules that cause certain kinds of molecules to assemble into certain kinds of random structures because the first uh, RNA sequences, for instance, would have just been random, okay? And then through the process of selection and then evolution, these random sequences were most of them just discarded, and a very rare few actually had properties that gave them catalytic and genetic uh, Uh, capabilities. So we don't know how rare that event was. And we can guess, we can hope that it was relatively common so that we might reproduce it in the laboratory in a human lifetime, which is what we're trying to do after Mm. all. But but it may have been just once in a hundred million years that just one little piece of this came together and it took a whole planet to have enough of those chances so that once in a hundred million years this came together just once. So
0: we're getting very speculative here, but that leads me back to astrobiology. Given how rare it might have been on Earth, do you think the odds are good that it's happened somewhere else in all, on one of those many, many planets that we know to be out there? Well,
1: I'll give you two sides of this controversy again. Uh, Carl Sagan says billions and billions <laughs> and a lot of people will agree that uh, you know there's literally hundreds of billions of galaxies in the universe, and that's just the ones we can see. And our galaxy, the Milky Way, has 400 billion stars at last count, and we're already starting to see planets out there, and we think we might see Earth-like planets in the next few years because we have a uh, new, uh, the Kepler telescope has just gotten off the ground. Well, the point is that uh, you can also make the opposite argument, which Peter Ward did in a book called Rare Earth, just published a few years ago. And he said, uh, boy, when you add it all up, it's got to be really rather rare, Uh, just a few Earth-like things in our galaxy out of hundreds of billions, as opposed to Carl Sagan's much more optimistic view. Mm. So someplace in between. Mm. My own thought is uh, that uh, certainly microbial life looks to be very simple. We can literally count the number of molecules in a bacterium now. We can make a genome. We can synthesize a genome. I can make a membrane just by self-assembly. We're, we're really sort of knocking on the door of putting together a very simple organism in the top-down uh, method of getting at this. Um, well, you know, so I'm, I'm optimistic. I think we'll probably have this in my lifetime.
0: Is there one experimental result or one discovery that you dream of at night that would just make your oh yeah your career for you what would yeah. that be
1: at some point a nucleic acid got together with a peptide and the result was something we now call a ribosome which is the center of life, in fact. That's what it takes to make proteins. We don't know what the simplest ribosome is. They're incredibly complicated now. You know, lots of RNA in there, lots of different proteins. So we we don't know what the first ribosome was like.
0: What we do know about ribosomes, these little specks inside of uh, cells, is that they're essential to translating nucleic acids Mm -hmm. into proteins. That's right, the information
1: content is what gets translated. But there had to be a first ribosome. Uh There had to be a point in time when RNA first began to interact with peptides to do something. And in my dreams, I would like to show that this could be done in a volcanic environment in which polymerization of both of these things was going on, and one began to help the other in a catalytic fashion. And this then was the start at which this communication that is still going on today between the sequence of bases in a nucleic acid and the sequence of amino acids in a protein that they first came together in a mutual aid society. Mm. So that is what I would love to see, and I'm trying to make that happen.
0: Well, if and when you do, will you come back and tell us about it? I sure will. Dave Diemer is research professor in the Department of Biomolecular Engineering at UC Santa Cruz. This is the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, And uh, now some bonus material for you online listeners. Here's a question I asked Dave Deemer after our interview was officially over. Now, now if life um, were forming spontaneously and it was um, not an exceedingly rare event, we might expect that the tree of life on Earth might have several trunks, yeah? That there might be multiple ancestors out there mm-hmm. for different life forms. Mm-hmm. But, but it's believed that we all descend from one. Yeah. One ancient, ancient ancestor, some bacterium back in the yeah. beginning. Yeah?
1: We do have a sort of hand waving explanation for that. Um, there may have been impacting events after life started that allowed only thermophilic life that had managed to find a niche in the deep ocean, these hydrothermal vent kind of environments, to survive. Everything else got wiped out. Mm-hmm. And therefore, that was the uh, origin of what we call the last universal common ancestor of all life. And the reason we think that there was a LUCA, last universal common ancestor, oh, is that uh, the genetic code is virtually identical for all life on Earth.
0: And uh, here's another question that might have occurred to some of you. If life sprouted spontaneously on the ancient Earth, then why isn't it doing so today? maybe in those very same volcanic puddles that Dave Deemer studies. Well, one very plausible answer was put forth by none other than Charles Darwin himself in a letter dated 1871. He wrote, If, and oh what a big if, we could conceive in some warm little pond with all sorts of ammonia and phosphoric salts, light, heat, electricity, etc. present, that a protein compound was chemically formed ready to undergo still more complex changes, at the present day such matter would be instantly devoured or absorbed, which would not have been the case before living creatures were formed. In other words, back when the Earth was new and uninhabited, those fragile little bubbles of proto-life that Dave Deemer and others hypothesize would have had a fighting chance to get their act together and get established without competition. But in today's bug-eat-bug world, they'd be gobbled up on the spot. And we might never even know they existed. Well, that's it for this week's edition of the Seventh Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, back next week.